Hello friends and welcome back to It's All Relative, the show that explores life's issues through a generational lens, helping us understand how we are evolving as consumers, workers and citizens. Each episode I shall be tackling a juicy question that I want answered by interviewing experts, voices and practitioners along the way to unravel the complex answer. Now, as you know, I speak a lot about generations, but admittedly, this is a hugely problematic concept built around rather vague, predominantly white, often affluent Western stereotypes. And while we talk of a globalised world, this can so often mean globalisation through a Western lens. So I want to tackle that by exploring a question that I get asked a lot, but never have a sufficient answer for. And that is the difference between generational identities in China compared to the West. Indeed, how are generational, familial and demographic trends playing out in China? And in turn, how can that help us understand ourselves, our generation and ultimately how the world is changing? Now, I can think of no better person to discuss this topic than today's guest and my friend, Zach Dykewald. A native Californian, Zach was a student at Columbia University when he first ventured to China in 2011. He ended up spending most of his 20s there, becoming fluent not just in the language but also its people, specifically the world of his peers, the 400 million strong millennial generation who were then maturing just as China itself was maturing into a global economic superpower. Zach's research culminated in his 2018 book, Young China, How the Restless Generation Will Change Their Country and the World. He takes us on a journey into the Chinese millennial experience, one-child syndrome to delayed adulthood, from the quiet sexual revolution to leftover women, from karaoke to KFC. I cannot recommend the book highly enough. Zach now runs the Young China Group, a market insights firm which helps companies understand the logistics and values of doing business in China. He's worked with some of the world's biggest companies, all in his endeavor, and in his own words, to explain and experience the China that lies behind the wall. Zach, welcome to It's All Relative. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Can we start in the basics? What are the generational categories in China and how are they different from the West? Despite talking about millennials and Gen Z quite a lot, the very first learning I often try to impart with, with people I'm, and, and companies I'm working with is China doesn't have any millennials. China doesn't have any Gen Z. The word for millennials in Chinese is Chen Xi Dai, and the only time I've ever said it is when referring to Americans and, and other sort of Western countries. And largely because China changes so fast that they have 15 or 20 year blocks to try to cram a group of people in is just impossible. And particularly trying to use a Western framework, you know, the Western background of when what historically significant thing happened and trying to fit people into those groups that form millennials and, and Gen X and, and boomers, et cetera. It just doesn't work in China. They had a different set of historical significant events that inform how, how certain groups of people are, are best grouped. That's a really long way of saying, uh, China typically does generations on the decade. So you have the post fifties generation, the post sixties generation, post seventies, post eighties, post nineties, and each of those has a different character. For savvy marketers who are working within China, you often even do generations on the five-year block. So what kind of cool sneakers are the post-95s interested in? How are the post-05s approaching education in a way that's different than, than their parents? How is you know the post-80s, who are often called the guinea pig generation, because they were the first generation born into a uh, reform and opening in China when they were kind of trying everything out, how to be a capitalist country, some of those worked, some of those didn't. And then the post-90s generation is the generation I really focus on, which is really the pivot generation 
that is reimagining what it means to be Chinese on the world stage today. It makes so much more sense to have them broken up by decades. But also even, like you say, zooming in on those kind of five-year brackets. There wasn't a baby boom, so you can't really have that sort of narrative that you see in the West, which was the sort of the older generations having all the money and the opportunity and the younger generations being stifled. What's the sort of generational dynamic within Chinese society? So, so China actually did have the largest baby boom in the world. But the reason we don't know about them is exactly the point that you just picked up on, which is they weren't transforming the marketplace through every single life stage that they were at. But make no mistake, you know, in 1950, China's population was only 540 million people. Today it's 1.4. So between 1950 and 1980, uh, China's population increased from 540 million to 980 million. That's the 440 million person increase. In China, the older generation was poor. You know, as recently as 1990, the per capita GDP in China was around 300 bucks. And so this generation, the older generation in China, wasn't transforming the consumer economy like what we have in the United States and Western Europe, but they absolutely were transforming China's economy writ large. When you think about the manufacturing miracle in China, really beginning in the early 1990s, 1993, with Deng Xiaoping's famous Southern tour, where he decided you know, I'll plant a tree and here two fourth will flourish an economy. It's the baby boom generation in China that built the manufacturing boom in China through their hard work, dogged determination, and deep desire to want to make a better life for the next generation. That's what built the manufacturing miracle in China. Is there this dynamic of we sacrificed for you so that you could enjoy the fruits of our labor? Absolutely. I mean, if someone said that straight up, it would be, there's a lot of guilt that comes with that, right? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it, that the we sacrificed for you narrative is one that is is quite laden with guilt. There is a certain element of that. Look, the, the older generation was known as that the eat bitter generation. The idea that we are going to till the fields, we are going to ask for extra hours in the Nike factory, because it was the first time that more work meant more money and a potentially better life. We're going to delay gratification today and not delay gratification like six months. And then, you know, we're going to go take a vacation in the Bahamas. It was we're delaying gratification for five years, 10 years, 20 years so that the next generation can have a better life. Now, that generation has arrived. And so from the delayed gratification mentality that defined the older generation, which has a lot of, by the way, corollaries with the the post-depression era American generation, sort of hiding money under the mattress, never feeling like there's enough, never feeling security. This younger generation actually has a lot of similarities with American boomers. They're the me generation. They want to enjoy themselves now. They're not delaying gratification. They want to 活在当下. They want to live in the moment. Right. And so there absolutely is the sense of sacrifice. In some cases, it is laced with guilt and pressure, but also with enormous levels of, of opportunity and enablement that come with it. Could you talk a little bit about the impact of the one-child policy and its impact on families and demographics within China? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think maybe taking a step back and understanding what makes this generation unique in China would be really helpful. Mm, mm. Um, so first is scale. We touched on this kind of briefly before. It's 400 million plus millennials in China, which is more than the population of the US and, and Canada combined. There's more young people in China than there are young people in North America, 
the European Union and the Middle East combined. So big group, that's scale. Sorry, just to pinpoint that, how many Gen Zers are there? So I think there's around 320 million, if I'm getting this number right. But again, keep in mind that Gen Z is is a is a Western construct, and so we're we're sort of cobbling together of the the demographic data from from the UN. So around 320 million. Sure. There's 700 plus million people under the age of 40. Right. Wow. Demography, which is what you're getting at, which is so important in China. It used to be in China, I think 1950s, there was a lot of young people and very few old people. In the 1950s, the average kid per family was between five and six, and the average life expectancy was 40. So, you, you know, baby boomers of the US get old, you take a cruise. Uh, <laughs> no, in China, you weren't taking a cruise, you'd be dead. Yeah. And that's tough. Because of an incredible longevity revolution, actually during COVID, China's average life expectancy surpassed that of the United States. Uh, still less than, than most of Western Europe, and the world's largest baby bust with the one-child policy, which began in 1980. If you actually look at the data, there's a, there's a major decline from about five to six kids per family in 1970 to 1980. So it was about three kids per family at the beginning of the one-child policy. So that work had already been done before. If you imagine a demographic pyramid, sturdy on the bottom, lots of young people, narrower on the top, it's more or less inverted. And so you have today what's called the 4-2-1 crisis. You have four grandparents, two parents, one child. And that upside down pyramid is a massively important visual for marketers, for investors, for, for people who have consumer brands, because that works like a downward funnel. It's a funnel for love. Mm. It's a funnel for opportunities. Money. It's a funnel for resources. <laughs> yeah. It's a funnel for food. Yeah, money, no doubt. Like I, it, we call it intergenerational financial fluidity. Money flows much easier in between the generations in China than certainly it does in the West. It's also a funnel for pressure and particularly for companies with, with workforces in China, not understanding the element of pressure. You know, you kind of referenced it before, we sacrifice so much so you can have a better life the pressure on this younger generation to get ahead in the education market when they're young, the college, the graduate degree market, the job market, the marriage market. That inverted triangle, I mean, that that is obviously happening within China, but it's happening across the English-speaking world and, and, and Western Europe, not to the same extent. Nearly to not the same Not to the same extent, but what strikes me about China, and I, I may be wrong in this, so do correct me, is that they're just obsessed with it much more than perhaps we are and take it that much more seriously and you're seeing state initiatives could you talk a little bit about perhaps how that conversation happens at a state level and what that's led to in terms of policies so the world's largest baby boom followed by the world's largest baby bust has created a distorted process of basically fewer young people and more old people so of course it exists in japan of course it exists in most of the anglophone world um, but it's just not as severe as, as what you have in China. And then of course you bring that up to scale and the scale of China's population and you have something quite severe. So how is the government thinking about this? Well, there's a few things. First is the aging of the population and it's a young people problem as much as it is an older person problem. In China, the retirement plan used to be your kids. It's called the return and feed model. Uh, you'd have a bunch of kids and this is a rural society. Those kids would go into the fields and produce for the family the payback yeah exactly uh the return and feed model is basically like look mama bird takes care of baby bird to a little bit later stage when baby bird is ready to form their own family they push them out of the nest with the tacit understanding that when when mama and papa bird get old those baby birds are going to come back and take care of them now that was easy to do when there were six kids per family and the average life expectancy was 40. there were protests in the 80s when the one child policy formally began and people 
carrying banners through streets throughout the country. The one-child policy is fine. The government has to come and take care of the old because now those baby boomers are, are hitting retirement age. I mean, I've had a number of conversations with pretty high up party cadre within the CCP who can tell you to the, the renminbi, which is about between 15 and 20 cents on the dollar, depending on the day, how much each aging person in their city is going to cost them if they don't find a better solution to pension planning. And what age is that? Just to clarify, what age does retirement and old age really kick in? Because I feel that's yeah. cultural as much as anything else. It's cultural and it's also physical. So 55 for women and 60 for men. And the reason I say physical is because the older generation in China, I mean, they survive famine. This is one of the things that we forget. Between 1958 and 1961 and the Great Leap Forward, about 45 million people died of starvation. And the ones that survived, you can tell pretty immediately if I'm hanging out with my friends and their grandparents, um, over Chunzia, over Chinese New Year, you know, the grandparents are often a head shorter. And that's from malnutrition when they were young. And so the aging problems, the medical issues associated with it, I work with a number of medical supplies companies, and just the different issues that they're facing as they age, keeping in mind also that this generation is tough as nails. They survived the Cultural Revolution. They built China's manufacturing economy. The problems are just different. Where it comes back to young people on this, and I think you're going to find this, you know, you talk about the burden of guilt and responsibility. China doesn't have religion, but it does have Confucianism to be a good son or daughter, right? And so it is expected that you'd be and filially pious, a terrible translation, because I'd never <laughs> be like, hey, Liza, I'm going to go head home for the holidays and be filially pious to, to my parents. Sure but in China, are. it's like, like it's, it's totally conversational. Um, and so for this young generation, they have this tremendous want to look after their parents, coupled with an almost complete financial inability to do so because of that demographic pyramid. What's it like operating in a society that doesn't have siblings to the same degree as, as other parts of the world? What impact has that had on them as workers? Talked about their responsibilities within the family, but maybe how it impacts dating. I'm just thinking there's all sorts of ramifications that being an only child is a huge challenge. Well, it's certainly different. And I will say my Chinese friends watching my sibling dynamics with my sister are sometimes like, you know, maybe the single child thinks it's, it's not a bad idea. Um, <laughs> Me too. So, I'm one of three. <laughs> yeah, you get, you get it's, it's a really mixed bag. And so to, to sort of get at your question before, which is the government, how are they handling the population issues? Um, let's first talk about do people want to have a second or third child now? Because you can't. Right. In 2015, the one child policy relaxed to two. Now the two child policy is relaxed at three. But the thing that we know, and this is another great demographer catchphrase, is urbanization is the best form of birth control. Uh, because suddenly the, the cost of life, the cost of food, the cost of space is much more tangible than when you're in the countryside. And so in 2015, I was going around the country interviewing people, do you want to have a second kid now? And very consistently, the answer we got was no. Why? Because a second child would make both half as competitive. And this goes back to the intense competition of education, job, marriage market, but the amount that the older generation invests in the younger generation is so significant. And the competition is so fierce mm. that people just aren't willing to have a second or third child because they feel like it would be irresponsible to both of them or all three of them. But I can tell you a quick story to help bring this to life. At the beginning of my trip to China, which I thought was gonna be a year and has turned into 12 now, give or take, with a couple of stints 
outside, I was an English teacher. I would teach on the weekends basically to try to make enough money to take trains across the country and explore and all that. But the means to do that was I had to dress up in an orange jumpsuit and wear a turtle puppet on my hand to teach young, pretty well-off children both coding as well as English simultaneously. I'm just trying to imagine that. I can reenact that on a, on a later <laughs> date. Um, I do have some pictures here and there that I've buried uh, with some with some legal bulwark around it, just so no one ever brings that up and and uh, and reminds me. So, keep in mind that the only thing I knew about this younger generation was that at the time is that they were called little emperors, right? Right. These kids spoiled rotten from being at the bottom of that upside down pyramid. And so, by the way, if they're little emperors, my role with this ridiculous clown outfit is crystal clear to me. <laughs> one class in particular. Six five-year-olds, one one kid stands out, his name was Jianguo. It's like a really old school name. It means create the country, but uh, you know, very 1950s, 1960s. Jianguo had a comb over, he had an Argyle sweater, corduroy pants, and those cool light-up sneakers that do that thing when he when he ran around. Again, the only thing I knew was that these kids are probably gonna be spoiled. My job kind of sucks. And um class starts and the kids are just kids. I used to be a swim coach back in California and Lot of lot of five, six year olds. And these kids were pretty extraordinary. They're they're well behaved, they were kind, they were a little awkward around some of the other kids because they were single children. But in China, there's so many cousins that that when you grow up, you often call them brother and sister, that there's actually less of a of a social acclimatization that needs to happen than, than one would expect. And it would have been a totally normal class were it not for the fact that at the back of the classroom, behind a glass partition, for those six, five year olds. There were 12 parents and 24 grandparents watching every twist of a microscope, every tap of a keyboard. I mean, can you imagine the pressure? Class ends and I go talk with the parents. Um, you know, I was sort of the, I was as much entertainment as anything. And I hear in the corner of the room, I hear Jen will start to cry. Um, and I look over and there's four grandparents surrounding him sort of looking confused. His dad is dressed exactly the same as him. Uh, Argyle sweater, corduroy pants, no light up sneakers, unfortunately. And his mom is standing over him with pieces of paper. As I get closer, I see on the pieces of paper, you have microscope, nucleus, seashell. These are the words that we had discussed that day in class. I ask her, you know, what's up? I didn't assign any homework. And she says, Jenguo will have to take the college entrance exam in 13 years. We are trying to give him the edge. Oh my goodness. There's incredible opportunity afforded this young generation. But there's also so much pressure to perform, to excel, to make two sets of grandparents and one set of parents proud that weighs down on this generation. And if you look at all of the workforce stuff now, the phenomenon of Tongping, the lying flat generation, quiet quitting, which is definitely happening in China as well. Could you just explain the lying flat phenomenon to the listeners who don't perhaps know about it? Yeah, of course. So about three years ago, there's a variety of words. It's always interesting to see like what filters through to like hit the New Yorker and Western Europe around what's popular in China right now. So Tangping is a, is a phrase which means lying flat. And there's this phenomenon in China, which is that young employees who were worked to the bone, you know, 996 at a lot of these tech companies, which is nine in the morning, nine at night, six days a week, a casual startup schedule, were just so tired because they, they could hardly afford rent, they couldn't save up for an apartment, and they decided they had no recourse. So the, the greatest silent rebellion against the system of pressure was just to chill, <laughs> was just to lie flat, not do anything, stare at the ceiling. And 
it turned into like a relative movement in China. It's not like it was the majority of people, but it was something that people resonated with. And everyone was asking me, what's the deal with this? I'm like, well, if you look at the project of childhood in China, if you look at how pressurized it is, and then as you go through towards the job market, if you look at how there's there's actually more, I mean, China is overeducated and undereducated, but overeducated in a lot of ways. They, they just graduated 11 million college graduates this last year and keeping up the job market and job creation at pace with that, as well as graduate level jobs is just extraordinarily difficult. So these kids are treated like they're disposable. So they decided to lie flat. Are we seeing a level of disillusionment amongst Gen Z, having seen what the millennials have gone through? Is there a real distinction and a, a difference with that Generation Z that are you know, lying flat and, and recognising the pressure and, and in many ways rejecting it? I think with the post-95s, which I guess is the beginning of Gen Z, they've seen the growth slow. And so I'm going to I'm gonna inject the live change index here just because I, I think it's really important, especially for such a smart audience as yours. Um, I'm assuming, but I, I'm sure. Assume away. <laughs> it, it's really hard to contextualize because you can be like, okay, India changes fast. You know, Nigeria changes fast. China changes fast. I get it. No. So the live change index is something I created to help contextualize this. We wrote about it in Harvard Business Review. It really helps. And so it's per capita GDP over time. That's it. Per capita GDP is an imperfect metric because it doesn't take into account the Gini coefficient and, and wealth disparity, but it's pretty good when you're trying to compare apples to apples across the world. And so as a young American in my lifetime, I was born in 1990 to today, I've watched our per capita GDP increase around 2.6x. So imagine that in concrete terms, my quality of life theoretically should have improved 2.6x. The education my parents could afford for me two and a half times better. Mm. The trips we could take maybe two and a half times longer, two and a half times more expensive. Right. The hedges around our house two and a half times higher. <laughs> However you want to imagine this, go for it. But imagine it in really tangible terms. My friends in China, 1990 to today, have watched their per capita GDP increase 33x in their lifetime. That's insane. Wow. 2.6, 33. Maybe it's just a developing country thing, right? What about India, the other demographic giant in the world? The other, you know, people are looking towards India as the next China. 1990 to today, around 6x. Really? Wow. Brazil, 3.2. Uh, Germany, the leader of Europe, 1.9. If you look at the top 40 largest economies in the world, the one thing they all have in common is that through the lived change index, the amount of change they've witnessed, that number is under 10x, with the exception of China, which is at 33. And so for... The post-90s generation, the reason we call them the pivot generation, is because they lived through that rags to riches story. They've seen their village turn into a town, turn into a city. Their uncle being proud to roll a, a flying pigeon uh, bicycle back home as like a great sign of wealth and development. Now having a two-car garage, they've, they've just lived that. The idea that in 1990, we'd be talking about a great power struggle between the U.S. and China Right. Would have been laughable. Yeah, of course. Um, it, you know, it would have been a great power bullying yeah. a marginal developing country. It's pretty unique. You have the world's largest communist government creating the largest capitalist success in, in, in the history of economics. Now, it's not all going to work out. And it's being poked, prodded, pressured now more than probably ever has, uh, at least ever, you know, in the in the formation of the modern version of China. But if you're that young generation, you've lived through the go-go years. And now that those go-go years are behind you, there is a certain amount of questioning. Okay, what's next? 
should I really be busting my tail for a wage that might not even give me the life that I want? Or should I be considering more quality of life questions? It speaks to what you were saying earlier, that the millennial demographic in China actually mirroring the journey of the boomers in the West. Such leaps in material conditions. Is there a questioning of millennials' obsession with status, materialism, obsession with moving up, moving forward? Or is it just more of the same? There's still that yearning for status. When I compare generations, uh, or I always try to contextualize, are we comparing them to other Chinese generations or are we comparing to them to their peers abroad? The lying flat example is is a really good one because people are like, oh, like people, young people in the U.S. are also disillusioned with work. So young people in China aren't so ambitious either. And I have to be like, no, no, no. <laughs> um, to be clear, young people in China are still significantly harder working. And I, I've spent, look, I don't say this to, to bash Western young people. I think there's a lot of innovation and there's, there's, there's areas where we definitely excel. I used to be in the library in like a middling college that most people have never heard of. It's Suzhou Dashui. It's a university in Suzhou. And having also spent a lot of time in the Columbia University libraries, I can tell you that people are working harder in that no-name college than in Ivy Leagues in the U.S. It just the hard work quotient is just higher. But compared to their parents, they want to chill more. They want to eat more hot pot. They want to, in Chengdu, there's a toast, jinjiao youjiao, jinjiao zui. Um, it's like 700 years old. It's a very high-end way of saying, today we have booze, so today we'll get drunk. Basically like YOLO, you only live once. <laughs> That's a definitive shift from the older generation. So there's somewhere between like incredibly hardworking older Chinese generation. The more wealth, the better. We're willing to sacrifice our bodies and time for that. And the more YOLO younger generation that, that I definitely see in the States, they definitely want a higher quality of life. They're definitely deciding, you know, do I want a small apartment in a first tier city or a big apartment in a second and third tier city? those exchanges of value and time are being considered in a way that they just weren't for the older generation. And so I think of it as a little bit of a continuum towards Gen Z. You know, it's the theme of the podcast. It's all relative, right? And, you know, like you're talking about the Generation Z right. in China is, you know, is is edging towards that and asking different questions than their parents did. I mean, certainly I taught in China back in 2013. So I was teaching the history of capitalism to Chinese millennials. And what <laughs> struck me, right? So I came from a British university where seminars were never longer than an hour. Like that was that was it. One hour is your limit. In China, as soon as I got there, I realized looking at the timetable that seminars were three hours long. Right. But I would for my own sanity and very much for theirs, I would always give them a break after every hour. And what struck me was these kids. I mean, they're, you know, 21 year olds. As soon as I'd say, right, let's have a 10 minute break. Their heads would just drop to the desk and they would take a 10 minute nap because they had been up since like 5 a.m. doing various activities, various pieces of work, various things. And they were just knackered. And then I say, right, let's go again. Like, you know, lift their heads up and we'd start again <laughs> for another 15, 50 minutes <laughs> and then they'd have another break. So I totally understand what you're saying about the comparison of, of hard work and the difference between China and, and the West at university. Public naps, by the way, should be an institution. <laughs> well, I was just impressed they were able to do them, actually. I mean, I just can't. I'm not a napper. but um, You just got to work harder. They, they were obviously well versed <laughs> in habit. Let me tell you that. But one thing that really did strike me when I was there, and this is a very... Um, an obvious thing to say, but I'd really like your thoughts on it, was I was teaching the history of capitalism coming from Britain, where the socialist or, and the Christian critique of capitalism is so entrenched in our politics, in our society, in our churches, and particularly in young people's thinking around capitalism. But in China, they 
only associated capitalism with progress, with moving forward. Actually, that was their definition of individual freedom. That really stayed with me because they hadn't been groomed or educated in critiquing capitalism, which I found very surprising for a communist country. Hmm. I wondered if you could comment on any of that. You know, I call this young generation in China the, the restless generation. I think of them really as the identity generation. There's a lot of reasons why Maslow's hierarchy of needs doesn't really work out, but I think it, it's, it's informative for understanding generations in China. So the older generations in China were really aimed at moving out of subsistence, pulling themselves up. So think the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, water, shelter, the basics. And that wasn't guaranteed back then. And so there's a reason why they were so dogged to get themselves out of that into a place of stability. Now, once you move up the hierarchy of needs, and for I'd say about 75% of the population in China, they, they have. They're not as concerned with subsistence. And, and truthfully, the crisis of, of the COVID lockdowns over the last nine months has been pushing the, the population back into the sense of, wow, are we, are we concerned with those basics again, which would create chaos and deep, deep, deep insecurity within within the population. But so this young generation moving up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they're the identity generation. They're not as concerned with food, water, shelter. They're like, who am I? What do I stand for? What do I want for myself, my family, my country? And so for them, you know, you have these two tectonic plates that I feel like are grinding against each other. On one side, you have tradition, kind of what it's always to be meant to be Chinese, or at least how that's been summarized for this young generation, the importance of family, hard work, continual work, right? That it's not just spurts, but it's like that three hours versus one hour. It's that 20 years versus 20 weeks ability to work long and hard, sort of Mao's long march legacy. And on the other side, you have this other tectonic plate, which are the pressures of modernity, which are status, urbanization, and changing gender roles, apartment prices, you know, like really tangible things that were the need for education, right? Before it was easy to start a life uh, when you were 18 and you just kind of set up a shack next to your parents on land you already owned versus now you have to get educated. And, you know, when you're 25, 26, you're supposed to, you're supposed to still be educated until then. And then after you're 27, if you're not married, you're considered a loser. That's the grind of tradition and modernity against one another. Now, where those two fit together is really being negotiated right now, including this perception of go, 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 earn, 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 more, more, more is always better. I remember in 2018, there was this big effort. China's a big self-improvement country. And there's an app called Dadao, which is probably the most popular platform for podcasts and self-improvement and, um, you know, tens and tens of millions, maybe even hundred million users around the country, you know, mid-sized app in China. Mm -hmm. um, and there was this major campaign in all of the train stations throughout the country, which is where a lot of the business trips happen, particularly between Beijing, Shanghai, and then Guangzhou and Shenzhen, which was talking about what to do when money doesn't make you happy. Wow. Okay. Which is the first time that that's really been asked in China. And it's a big reason why, for instance, Tibetan Buddhism is being supported now within the country, because it kind of offers an answer for materialism if it's not making you happy. So it's a tough negotiation because they can't keep the growth that they had. It's easy to go from a small number to a, to a not so small number. Mm. It's harder to mm. double big numbers. We just know that. And so for a lot of the population, they now have to figure out how to just be comfortable with the world's middle class and sacrifice some of that growth for a higher quality of life. And that negotiation is happening right now in real time. That's fascinating. Is there a more sort of fluid understanding of gender? Or is that, you know, not something that's touched Chinese society like it has done in the West? Has China had its Me Too movement? How are, you know, 20-something women in China thinking about, you know, marriage, childbirth, gender equality, fair pay, mm -hmm. those issues? 
Yeah. So there's a couple different ways that I can answer this. I want to tell you a quick story just because I think this helps bring this to life. I got to speak at the Aspen Ideas Festival, 2019, I think, which was very surreal. I, I flew in from Chengdu. I was like, this is very pretty. Um, <laughs> and I was sitting between a woman who's known as sort of the Oprah of China. It's incredibly successful entrepreneur, sort of a figurehead, and Leda Hong Fincher, who's an incredibly accomplished academic who wrote the book and made, really made the discovery around the idea of leftover women. Yes. Leftover women being, of course, that if you're an unmarried woman after the age of uh, 27, you're deemed socially inedible. 27, okay. Uh, and it, it turns out that that was actually a phrase that was created by the government to really pressure young women to marry, of course, to try to remedy that 30 million person gender gap between men and women. Um, because the government in China knows that there's nothing more dangerous to society than young, undereducated men who feel like they deserve to have sex. Right. Truth, I mean, that's like putting yeah. it very bluntly, but truthfully, no greater powder keg in most societies around the world. So I was sitting between these two women at, at Aspen Ideas Festival, and I think Longyang is her name, and it's been a while since I've been in touch with her. But so this, this incredible, like the Oprah of China is talking about how there's more self-made millionaire women per capita in China than anywhere else in the world. Mm. Same goes for billionaires. There's more female entrepreneurs. Mao Zedong talked about how women hold up half the sky and so really enabled them in the workforce, really out of necessity, not out of progressiveness. <laughs> but like it, you know, this incredible, like women are empowered here story. And on the other side of me, I had Leda Hong Fincher, who was talking about how the government is threatened by independent women who are breaking down gender norms, who aren't going to be married by 27 just because society tells them to, who feel offended by this idea that they're told from a young age, okay, you need to get educated, you need to get educated. And education, of course, takes until you're 26, uh, and you're not supposed to marry because of like Confucian or, or date because of Confucian values. And then you have to figure out like love, dating, sex, marriage in a year, or you're deemed socially inedible. Like that's a, that's a hell of a whiplash. And so what was crazy for me, aside from it being very tense and me being stuck in the middle, <laughs> was that what both of these women were correct. Right. Yeah. Both of these versions of China are true. And and so there are these incredible female entrepreneurs who are more empowered. There's less dogma. And on the other side, Leda Hong Fincher is also true. Like it's common in Chinese interviews for unmarried women to talk about when are you planning on getting married and having a baby? Is this something you you want to do? I've had female friends talk about in interviews saying they like other, they like women, just so they can sort of dodge that question. That seems socially acceptable, is it, for a woman to say that? It's discouraged and it's changing. And, and this is getting at your question. There is major pushback against the idea of, of leftover women, particularly the 27-year-old demarcation. It's pretty much 30 in, in first-tier cities um, and, and sort of leading-edge second-tier cities. But that's a pretty small percentage of China at the end of the day. You're talking about the top quartile is shifting these perceptions of what it means to be a woman. And, and they're definitely leading edge, washing over the rest of the country. But in large swaths of the country that are less educated, less progressive, mm. less globally exposed, there's still a large amount of tradition. Again, China doesn't have religion, it does have family and, and family creation, the importance of that, that restricts the perceived choices of, of a woman. I'd just like to say there that that isn't a uniquely Chinese problem. I mean, we don't, the government, in the UK Agreed. haven't used the term, invented a term to describe leftover women, but the phenomenon runs very much through certainly 
British society, the English-speaking world, I suspect, and most of Europe, is that sense. And it's not around 28. It's not around 30. It's around 35 where those uncomfortable conversations, those uncomfortable questions are asked. I know because I was a leftover woman, (laughs) childless, 35 and not married, being asked, do you want children? Are you ever going to get married? That kind of thing. Yeah. So I I think it's it's just more overt in China, right? It's more overt. And there's something that I think actually that, that folks from the UK, folks from parts of Western Europe, places where like immigration, like it's more of a melting pot. Um, just don't understand because in China, China's 91% Han Chinese. And so it's people who are all from the same culture and, and value system and sure values change, but like it's much more homogenous than most places in the world. So I talk with people in, in Southeast Asia. I talk with people in from all parts of Africa, um, certainly the Middle East for whom it's much more similar because the cultural norms and values are all the same. Mm. You know, if you feel that in your small town in Milwaukee, sorry, not to diss people from Milwaukee, <laughs> um, but you go to New York and suddenly like, it's this culture of empowered people who are all from different cultures and sure. there's far more pressure valves. And in China, there's just not. And actually it speaks to the comment that you made earlier about urbanization being, I can't remember the phrase you used. The best form of birth control. I mean, I'd say tertiary education actually is. Mm-hmm. It's more important, more profoundly impactful, I think, on women. Yeah. Now, one often follows the other, so it's hard to distinguish. But I think particularly India, you're seeing women having babies Mm -hmm. later, delaying marriage. And the driver for that is not urbanization, it's tertiary education. A lot of the time they are staying at home doing degrees remotely. But that is the process that's delaying their traditional pathway Mm -hmm. into womanhood. There is so much that I could ask you. I mean, God, we could go on and on and on. But I'm going to stop you because I feel like I've taken up most of your morning. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to thank you, Zach, for coming on It's All Relative. And you can connect with Zach on LinkedIn, on Instagram. You can buy his brilliant book. And you can also subscribe to his newsletter, which is vital reading in these times. Thank you so much for listening to It's All Relative. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Eliza Philby. And why not subscribe to my weekly newsletter to hear more from me about how we are changing as consumers, workers and as systems. Oh, and do rate us on Apple Reviews. It helps me keep this podcast going.